So let me ask by hands, who was not here last week? Can I see, just so I get a feeling? That's a good, no was anyone here? <laughs> Couple. <laughs> okay. I sometimes like to do a series of classes and, um, and one builds on the other, but I'll go back and, and do enough reviewing, so hopefully it'll feel like you're getting, you get the full picture. But if you uh, can downstream from our website or get the podcast, this is three weeks on the art of practice, on wise practice. And I like to, a few times a year, go right through the very basic components of meditation practice. Um, in a way, it's like, for each of us, we have this palette of different possible meditative strategies, and each of us is going to find that we pick our own kind of blend, and there's going to be some common denominators, but some skillful means or strategies are more useful for some than others. So I like to give, in these three weeks, some of the major pieces. And last week we started by saying this is for formal practice when you sit or, or come into stillness in practice, but they, it applies to all of living. And in a way, even the word formal practice can be a little misleading. There was uh, one Zen practitioner who approached Suzuki Roshi, famous uh, Zen mind, beginner's mind, the author of that. And he asked him this question. He said, what should a Zen practitioner do with his spare time? <laughs> and Suzuki, first he looked perplexed, and then he repeated the phrase, spare time, and he repeated it a few times, he began to laugh uproariously, he couldn't stop. Because the idea of spare time, like, all moments aren't opportunities for really being alive, being here, being in love, being aware. So, in a way, in that spirit, um, We'll be exploring tonight a lot in terms of mindfulness, mindful presence, and really how to have all of life be real life. All of life be real life. And what I mean by that is that we spend a lot of moments where we've got an idea that we're on our way to something else, or we've just left what's happening. You know, we're in transit, so to speak. We have a lot of moments we feel like we're doing chores or tasks or the, the, the necessary stuff so that then we can have the moments that matter. And if we really are honest, that ends up occupying huge swaths of our life moments. Huge swaths, where we're not thinking, this is it. It's on its way to something else. Does that make sense? The biggest gift we can give ourselves is committing ourselves to waking up throughout our life, to not wait. To not wait to realize really who we are. We live in such a small version of what we are. Okay, we're going to come back to that. Last week I mentioned Rumi's, a wonderful line from one of Rumi's poems where he says, Do you make regular visits to yourself? Remember that? Do you make regular visits to yourself? It's not a self-centeredness. This is a freedom from self-centeredness because it means do you make regular visits to the life that's right here so you can rest in an awakeness? So what inspires our practice, and we, we explored this last week, 
many, many people, and more, it's more happening in this culture now than ever, are taking on some practice of meditation or yoga or whatever, and our intentions are layered. Um, you know, sometimes we're doing it, we're kind of on a good personhood project, or we're trying to feel better in some way, improve ourselves. Um, sometimes there's a real guilt, like I should meditate kind of thing. And so I, I wanted to begin by saying that um, the depth and freedom that's possible will come out of the quality of sincerity. That if you decide tonight, okay, I'm going to go deeper in practice. I'm going to set aside some time every day. And it's a real gift to the soul to do that. Your day totally shifts, subtly and not so subtly, when there's a dedicated, conscious intention to come home, to come back home. Life comes out of that then. So when we approach formal practice and there's sincerity, and by sincerity I mean that we're in touch with what we really care about. It's not habitual, it's not, oh, I should, it's not, you know, all right, I'll set the timer for this, kind of grudging. It's not with a feeling of falling short, it's just I'm coming into stillness, I'm making this visit to my beingness because I care more about waking up from the trance, more about living from my heart, more about loving, more about freedom than I do about kind of staying on this habitual um, merry-go-round, the routine. So we pause. Practice is kind of a conscious pause and connect with that sincerity. Okay, so last week we then talked about, well, what, what next? And we're spending some time on what I call the gateway of presence, the how do we arrive in presence? Because for most of us, we're so um, busy and so leaning forward, you know, onto the next, that it takes a kind of some skillful ways of, okay, right here. It's like we're training the dog, you know, come on back, be right here, now sit, <laughs> you know. And the dog runs off, and you don't punish the dog, you don't blame the dog. You just gently, come on back, come on back. And the dog will do anything. I mean, it's like, does the embarrassing stuff, it pees in the corner, but you just, okay, that's what our minds do too. The mind knows no shame, right? <laughs> It just does this stuff, and she just say, okay, come back. Come back, okay, just be right here. And it's okay that it goes off. In fact, the real training is not that it holds still, but that we start getting the knack of noticing what's happening and gently arriving right here again. It's almost like we're, if you think of neuroscience, we're training the neuropathways of presence. And every moment that you leave, it's okay. If there's a remembering, you've somehow or other strengthened that pathway. You're getting a little more familiar with home being that kind of hereness, where it's not necessarily pleasant, but there's a real honesty that you're here, and a kind of tenderness in that. So the arriving, the way we arrive, and hopefully you kind of are feeling that in the guided instructions, is that we come into stillness and we first relax because part of our habituality is we habitually tense. We all have this kind of armoring that we've had for decades. 
It's our way of kind of resisting what might go wrong. And it's in our body in certain places and it's so familiar we don't notice it until something really starts going wrong. So we begin to scan our body and notice the kind of habitual, and you might do it again right this moment. Why wait, you know? Just kind of check in and say, oh, is there a way that, you know, that the shoulders are up and tight? Is there a way the belly is clenched? I mean, is it possible even right now to soften the hands a little? I find sometimes just a slight smile, kind of softening the eyes. So the beginning of arriving is this getting aware of our habitual tightening and just in that awareness coming back and just a little more ease, a little more openness. And then we really consciously open our sense doors and by that I mean feel the sensations here. You know, listen. We sometimes have what's called an anchor or home base and I, last week I, I mentioned the different anchors but the most common is the breath. It's not the only one. But just to say the goal of meditation is not to be with the breath. The breath is just another of maybe, I think the Buddha said there were 80,000 skillful means and that help us to arrive. It's a skillful means. And by letting the breath be in the foreground, we can settle down and notice more quickly, perhaps, when we've left presence. And by perhaps bringing a more steady focus on the breath for some practice, this isn't the whole of practice, we can develop more laser-like attention, collect more deeply. But the real purpose of practice is a very open presence. So these are ways of arriving that I'm mentioning right now. Another wonderful anchor is listening to sound. When you listen to sound, you'll sense the spaciousness of experience. I describe it sometimes, this arriving, as remindfulness because it's a purposeful uh, practice of noticing when we've gone into trance, not trying to get rid of thoughts, but very consciously noticing the trance so that we're no longer inside it. And that's the key. If you notice it, you're no longer inside it. Now last week a question came up after class when we we had a question-answer period with, um, we do it once a month, and the question was, but we really need to think, don't we? I mean, we can't go around always being present and we need to do our jobs and we need to... And sometimes there's good ideas and if we're just like being with the breath and this sound and this moment, um, how can we ever operate? And we can't. We need to think. It's true. I just want to say that it's true. I mean, thinking is an incredible, creative, wondrous part of our evolutionary capacity I mean, you have to think to write a poem or to compose a great, you know, symphony or to plan a business strategy or to work for the healing of the earth, anything. It takes thinking. I have to think to come up with how I'm going to structure a talk. I'm not just sitting there with the breath and listening to sound. (laughs) Um, And so the problem is not thinking. This training we're doing in remindfulness is not because thinking's a problem. It's because when we get lost in thought, when our life is largely living in a trance of thinking, 
then we suffer. We miss out. And so the point of meditation training is not to get rid of thoughts, it's to develop the capacity to notice thinking so we have some choice there. Does that make sense? Said differently, if you're suffering in your life right now, if you're suffering it's because you're getting lost in a trance of unpleasant thoughts. You're getting lost in it, you're believing the thoughts, you're taking them to be real, you're subscribing in the thought reality. So having this capacity to become mindful of thinking, in the moment that you're mindful you go meta to the thinking, you're bigger than them. In that moment that you're bigger, you have some choice as to whether or not to actually believe them. It's very freeing. One of my friends, Wes Niskert, because the whole thing's about our relationship with thinking, so much of the freedom is. He says this, he says about his relationship with his mind, he says, we're still friends and we still live together, but I'm no longer codependent, you know? <laughs> I mean, think of it, the evolutionary thrust of thinking is to fix what's wrong and it's to get more of something. And if that is what dominates our life, we're always fixing what's wrong and trying to get more, Where's there room for really being creative, really feeling love, really being at home in our being? And so the forgetting, when we get lost in the trance, sometimes it, it takes shape in very painful ways, and we know that. Like when you start, when you get sick, and, there's, and your mind fixates on, I'll never get better, this is going to be the rest of my life, that's a, that's a trance of suffering. Or when there's a breakup in a relationship, and there's a sense of really being... Uh, damaged goods and that no one, you'll never be with anyone ever again. Or those are the kind of trances that really grip us. But in every day we get caught in smaller ways where in some way we're thinking that we're less than we are. Or it might be that we're in a very superior egotistical trance but it creates separation. But for most of us it's more, in some way we feel less than, we're self-conscious, we're not really free in ourselves. A story some of you might remember, it's one of my favorites of a woman who's visiting a small New England town, or lives in a small New England town where Paul Newman and his family often visited and after a hike she decides to go to uh, get her favorite double-dipped chocolate ice cream cone at a a, uh, bakery ice cream parlor there and who's sitting in the store but Paul Newman and he's having donut and a coffee and so her heart skips a beat as her eyes make contact with those famous baby blue eyes and he nods graciously and she, this starstruck woman smiles demurely and she's telling herself, pull yourself together you're a happily married woman with three children you're 45 years old, not a teenager don't be a jerk, come on, you know, that kind of thing so she's kind of in this space clerk fills her order and she takes the doubled up chocolate ice cream cone in one hand and her change, change in the other. Then she goes out of the door. She avoids even a glance in Paul Newman's direction. She's kind of gliding smoothly. She reaches her car and realizes she has a handful of change but her other hand is empty. Where's my ice cream cone? Oh my God, did I leave it in the store? Back she goes into the shop expecting to see the cone in the clerk's hand or on a holder on the counter. No ice cream cone in sight. With that, she happens to look over at Paul Newman. His face breaks into his familiar, warm, friendly grin, and he said to her, you put it in your purse. (laughs) 
we all get caught in trance, and sometimes we don't make a total fool of ourselves, but we all get caught in these ideas and thoughts about who we are and who else and so on. It's a gift to learn to pause, to in some way start getting the knack of going, okay, just stop, okay, what's going on right now? What's the trance I'm in? What am I believing? What am I living out of? And arriving here again. So that's remindfulness. Now, what that does when we pause is it creates the possibility for really the whole reason we practice, which is unconditional presence. Really discovering that awareness that's right here, awake and open. And it's sometimes described as mindfulness. Mindfulness, I think of as the borderline between a practice and a non-practice. And let me explain that, because this is key, because it has to do with controlling our attention. With mindfulness, you're purposely paying attention to what's happening right here, without any judgment. So it's on purpose. So there's an intentionality. There's some subtle sense of doing something, because you're on purpose paying attention. Okay? So if I said right now, okay, be mindful of your experience. Go ahead. You're on purpose paying attention. And yet the reason it's a mix of practice and non-practice is the awareness itself is absolutely non-controlling. In the being aware of your experience, there's no doing. It's like if I said, listen, you're not doing anything. And I think listening is probably, if there's any mode of attention that most expresses uh, what pure awareness is, listening comes the closest because it's so clear when we're listening that there's no doing, it's a receptive presence. In fact, there's two qualities, uh, just if there's nothing else that comes out of tonight, there's two qualities of full presence that are really liberating. And one, and you can sense them with listening. And one quality is what we call noticing. When, there, when you're listening, there's a kind of a wakeful noticing, and it happens spontaneously and without any doing of the sounds. There's an awake kind of contact or receiving of the sounds. So that's one quality of mindful presence. The other quality is absolute allowing. In other words, listening doesn't interfere with the sounds. A listening presence is absolutely open and spacious. So the two qualities of natural presence of mindfulness are recognizing what's happening and allowing it. And if there's questions that help you to remember that, it's what is happening inside me right now? And can I let this be? Recognizing and allowing. I find it helpful, um, the, the metaphor of an ocean with waves. And that Um, the ocean is this allowing space. It's like when you're listening, it's that big space of mind that's receiving the sounds. 
And then the waves are, is like that wakeful contact with each particular experience. So you're receiving the waves in this oceanness. And when we are being that presence, there's a total sense of freshness. I, I like this is George Carlin. He says, Do you ever get that strange feeling of vuja day? <laughs> Not deja vu, vuja day. It's a direct sense that somehow something just happened that has never happened before. Nothing seems familiar. And then suddenly the feeling's gone. Vuja day. <laughs> I think it's good. So this is natural awareness. This uh, awake field that's just noticing what's happening and allowing it. And the reason we have to be purposeful, our entire conditioning goes against that. Rather than awake and allowing, we are in a continuous process of, if it's pleasant, trying to get more of it, and if it's unpleasant, trying to get rid of it. So it takes some training. In the moments of the reactivity, the conditioning we're in, it's impossible to see what's true. In other words, we can't know reality if we're reacting. The only way to know reality is to rest in that awareness. And yet, if we watch how we operate, whatever goes on, instead of just recognize and allow, we're immediately evaluating, figuring out, and trying to do something about it. Hence the training stories that describes us a little. There's a magician working on a cruise ship and he has a parrot that's always ruining his act, saying in the middle of the trick, the card's up his sleeve, or he has a dove in his pocket, or he slipped it through the hole in his hat. One day the ship sank. The parrot and the magician found themselves together on a life raft. For several days the parrot sat silent and stared at the magician. On the fourth day the parrot said, okay, I give up. What did you do with the ship? <laughs> and I like that because we, rather than what's actually happening, we're constantly putting our ideas around it. In other words, we, in this training of mindful presence, it's described as bare attention, not adding anything, not adding any ideas to the, what's actually going on. Um, when I was remembering that story about the parrot, I also remembered one of Jack Handy's deep thoughts. How many of you remember Jack Handy's deep thoughts? This is one of them. When I found the skull in the woods, the first thing I did was call the police. But then I got curious about it. I picked it up and started wondering who this person was and why he had deer horns. <laughs> See, I really like that. <laughs> The point being that we have preconceptions. We have operating a memory about what's happened in the past, concepts, predictions, and in any moment that that is added to our experience, we can't see things as they are. It's as Sri Narsargadatta described it. He said, our memory and our thoughts and our concepts are a good servant but a poor master. And the reason is, is that our memory effectively prevents discovery. And I think that's really powerful 
that when we experience something and we then compare it to the past or do our conceptual figuring out, it prevents discovery. So then how do we discover? How do we see the nature of reality? How do we arrive in that presence that really reveals what we are? And the training, I'm using the metaphor of listening, but it's a quality of presence that in a very profound way notices and allows. I think it's described very well in uh, one of these Zen stories of a master and a a young monk and they're eating a, a simple meal on a mountain trail. And the student says to the master, how do I enter Zen? How do I enter this liberating presence, this awakening? And there's a long silence. And finally the master says, do you hear the sound of that mountain stream? Now the young monk's mind had been busy. So first he strained to hear. And then he relaxed, just listening, alert. And finally, there's this hardly perceptible murmur of a small stream in the far distance. Yes, he said. The master said, enter Zen from there. So that's the non-conceptual understanding or enlightenment where everything's alive. And the, the young monk says, but what if, I, what if I hadn't heard the response, enter Zen from there? So the gateway is this profound, receptive presence, not adding anything, any idea, any memory, any wanting, any resistance. So what I'd like to do is just take a few moments to practice what we call natural presence or mindful presence. And even as you settle yourself a little, just to feel the sincerity that I sometimes think of as a real curiosity, a curiosity as to what is real, what's right here, a caring about presence. And in this pause, you might begin listening. We'll let listening be our gateway. So you're listening to the sound of these words and also to the spaces between these words and the sounds that are in the room. Just receptive listening not just with the ears, but as if with your whole awareness, all your senses, listening. Listening to the space that's right here in the room.
and listening to the more distant sounds around us, the whole symphony. Nothing to do. Sensing how even the most distant sounds are included in this sea of awareness. And in the same way that there's this recognizing and allowing of sound, this profound receptivity. You can listen to and feel the dance of sensations. What is happening right here? And can I just let this be? It's what I call a cellular yes to what's happening. symphony of sounds are known, the sensations are felt, the inflow and outflow of the breath moving through us. All occurring in this field of awareness awake and allowing. The Chinese poet Li Po describes this awareness in in the following verse. He says, the birds have vanished into the sky and now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and I, until only the mountain remains. You might sense who you are, what you are, 
when there's just this presence, recognizing and allowing the life that's here. Okay, so the Buddha taught that it is through this gateway of presence that we discover the nature of reality, that we see that everything's changing, that we see that when there's any grasping or resisting, there's suffering. And then the deepest way we discover that the whole idea we had about ourselves dissolves and disappears when we're completely here and not lost in thought. So only the mountain remains means there's just life playing out, but there's not a self-fixation. We're not centralized and organized around some notion of self. What that frees us to is really love. There's a wonderful story about Li Po, the poet that I just read from, And it's said that he lived a very old age and as he grew older he was more and more able to see the ultimate reality in all things. In other words, he he did not have that fixation on self. There was kind of an emptiness and an openness and a belonging to all of life. So it's said that the the older he got and the wiser he got, the more he actually fell in love with the natural world. So this presence, this dissolving of self-centeredness is not something that kind of removes us into some void away from this world. It actually frees us to feel our belonging, our love, our cherishing of this world. Now the challenge of this presence, and this is the last piece I'd like to cover tonight, is that, as I described earlier, as soon as there's strong pleasantness or unpleasantness, we start trying to control our experience. And this resting in this openness, this just letting things come and go, noticing and allowing, um, goes out the window. And we just basically get back in that trance of a self that wants things a certain way. Every one of us recontracts. And sometimes we have patterns of contracting, certain parts of our life that it's just a given that when a person treats us a certain way or something goes on financially or something to do with one of our addictive tendencies gets tripped off, we're gone. We've lost that that capacity to really be at home in the moment. And so um, I'll describe one friend's experience. Uh, This was a man who was very anxious guy, very driven and a very high achiever. And that's, that, that's about everybody I know. <laughs> no, actually, it's not true. But he, he was definitely in that, that kind of cluster. And he um, tried meditating, but he was mostly restless. And meditation was kind of a doing. He would plan a lot and um, mostly rated himself as a loser in terms of meditation. Like the, the notion that only the mountain remains. Well, for him, he'd, if there was a mountain, he'd be planning how he could photograph it or whether or not he could still hike it in his old age or, you know, a Rorschach on its shape. Or, you know, he's just a very busy guy. So 
he, ha he had this um, repeating dream in his life and in it he would be walking in the dark and there'd be some hot shadowy entity behind him and he'd be able to hear its footsteps and feel its breath on his neck and it was terrifying and he'd go faster and faster to try to get away and this is a dream he'd have really regularly and um, as he described it he'd, he'd, go, he'd always be running from it he'd always try to be hiding from it and he would wake up um, in, a, in a sweat and in a panic so he spent years and he analyzed it in therapy and he did, I don't know how many of you know psychodramas but he did psychodramas where he redid the ending to try to resolve it he did all the normal stuff we all do uh, and um, one night he had the dream and he started to run but something in him was aware that he was running mindfulness and um, he stopped and he just turned around and stood there and so this is the pause and he was totally terrified and he was looking into blackness into an emptiness and he was absolutely still and he could hear his own breathing and feel the terror and what welled up in him was this excruciating loneliness that sense of he had been running from this excruciating loneliness and then a huge grief and then a quietness that he had not experienced in as long as he knew and, and, and there were still tears and he found himself just kind of I sometimes do this also he was just kind of, kind of like this sometimes doing hugging himself um, with the tears but then just coming into silence and he said he woke up with a deep peace and a, and a freedom he had never known for him it was in some way he had gotten to the point that freedom from this whole trance of a self running, a running away self, a striving the freedom from that selfing trance was more important than feeling safe that it was more important to just stay and be with what was there than make himself feel comfortable or get away or do any of his old strategies so there was kind of a shift in his identity because the old identity was always running from something and there was a sense if he stopped something terrible would happen and he stopped and there was a question he and I explored which is who would you be if you didn't need to run away anymore and you can ask that yourself if you sense what you run away from or what you resist or what you control who would you be if you didn't need to control anymore or resist anymore or run away anymore and for him by being willing to stay by not running away he touched into who he was he touched into a, um, a space of awakeness and silence and freedom and in his life actually the way it, it turned out was because he was so driven it was like his drivenness was always running away from something he became a lot more playful and a lot more spontaneous it's just an example of outwardly things change we can't meditate so that we get to be more spontaneous but we can have a sincere intention towards presence and then the fruit of that is very naturally we become more who we naturally are 
When we stop doing the conditioned trance behaviors, we open to who we are. Joseph Campbell wrote at one point that the privilege of a lifetime is being who you are. And being means realizing and living from. We live in such a small version of ourselves. We are constantly sensing a self that's in opposition to something, that has to prove something, that's less than something, that needs to get somewhere. It's smaller than the mystery and the love and the awareness that is looking through these eyes right now. It's smaller. So our, in, the invitation really of this path is to choose presence and come to realize that mystery, come to realize really what it is that's looking through these eyes. Who is listening right now? Who you are when you're not running away anymore? The acronym I often teach with that helps to untangle the tangles when we're caught in the running away and the resisting is RAIN. And I'll just briefly introduce it now and I'll, I'll, I've, I've taught about, I've given whole talks and weekends on it, but um, the word RAIN, if you take the letters, and this is to, it really brings us to full presence. R is recognize and A is allow. So that's the, that's the, basic ground of presence. And the I is a deepening of presence when there's a tangle. And what the I stands for is investigate. In other words, with interest, pay deeper attention. What's really happening? The I is a double I. It's also be intimate with. If you investigate but there's not a quality of warmth, of tenderness, you can't really see what's there. So it's an intimate investigation. Okay. The end of rain, the fruit of rain, is non-identification. That rather than being in the trance, identified with a small version of yourself, like this man, you're free to rest in a much more spacious, open, tender place. And in that space, the spontaneity comes through, and the humor, and the love, and the generosity. In that space, the end of non-identification is also natural presence, we become who we really are. So what we'll do is uh, maybe end, uh, end this, this session with a, a, a brief guided meditation where you get to kind of explore those elements. And we'll bring together the pieces that we covered tonight in a very um, simple way. as you come into stillness and as you let your attention go within again sense your own quality of sincerity that for these next few minutes just your intention your openness your interest and your care about presence
Now, in a formal meditation, we don't necessarily bring up a difficulty that's going on in our life. We open to whatever's going on in the moment. But it can be a very skillful exploration. So, as I sometimes do, I'm going to invite you to sense if there's somewhere in your life right now where you really get hooked, where you really go into trance, get reactive. Something that's going on in your life that you'd like to bring the presence of rain to and see if there's a little bit of freedom that's possible. So for some it might be a conflict in a relationship or upset about what's going on for another person. For some it might be financial worries, something going on to do with work might be something to do with your health. might be a behavior, an addiction. You might bring to mind some difficulty and see if you can visually kind of sense the, what, what happens when you get caught in it perhaps stop the inner movie at the moment when you really get stuck. It might be when somebody else is saying something in a certain way or you're doing a behavior you don't like yourself for. Or it might be a thought about the future that really brings up a reaction in you. But go to the stuck place, just as that man did when the shadowy energy was right behind him, breathing down his neck. Go to the stuck place and give yourself permission just to stop right there, just to be right where you feel most stuck. And you might sense in the stuck place, you know, what is it you're most afraid of or upset about, so you can get in touch with it some. You're beginning with this willingness to pause, just to simply recognize and allow the experience to be there, to stop running. And just to honor that that's what's happening right now, you're not running. You're just agreeing, even if you're not that in touch with the experience, you're agreeing to be here right now. Recognizing and allowing this difficulty in your life, in this moment. In the pause, it's helpful just to try to not make it wrong. You're not trying to fix anything. The pause is really the opportunity to deepen presence, to understand, to discover an inner freedom. So we begin to investigate, and you might investigate by sensing, what about this most wants attention in my body? What's the emotion? What's the feeling that most wants attention? Is it fear? Is it grief? Is it anger? If you can feel the emotion, if you can feel the fear, the grief, you can almost let your face take on the expression of it. 
So you can really sense how it is physically and sense what you're believing. What do you believe is going to go wrong? What do you believe is wrong with you or with another person? And with an intimate, gentle attention, allowing yourself to feel what the experience is like in your body that's so difficult. It might be your heart feels squeezed. And I think it's helpful to put your hand on your heart as part of this practice of intimate attention so that while you're feeling what's difficult, you're offering a kind presence. as if your hand, and it's a tender touch, could just be communicating a care about the difficulty. So there's just noticing what's happening, allowing it to be here, investigating what it's like, and with a real kindness, just saying yes to letting yourself experience it as it is. Sense how deeply you can say yes in a caring way to, to the real core of fear or hurt. And this isn't, if it's something traumatizing, then I would suggest you just feel your breath and let the attention move away from it. But if it's not traumatizing, then to say yes, it can be liberating. You're not saying yes, I like the situation. You're not saying, yes, somebody else is right. You're saying yes to the feelings in your body that are actually here. Just that. And notice what happens if you intend to be even kinder in this moment to whatever's going on. You might even subtly shift the pressure of the hand as if your intention is to even go more deeply into kindness. And just sense who you are when you're not running away, when you're being present and saying yes. What's your sense of your own being? When you're ready, just to do the last part of the meditation, relaxing your hand down. Letting go of ideas about a particular situation and just sensing whatever's left right here in your body, in your heart. So starting fresh in this moment, just feel your breath. Relax a little more. bringing the purity of presence to just what's here, these sounds. these sensations.
to the aliveness, this ever-changing dance of aliveness. And to the inner stillness that's aware of all of this. closing poem by Donna Falds. In the shared quiet, an invitation arises like a white dove lifting from a limb and taking flight. Come and live in truth. Take your place in the flow of grace. Draw aside the veil you thought would always separate your heart from love. All you ever longed for is before you in this moment if you dare to draw in a breath and whisper yes. May we each have that privilege of a lifetime to be fully who we are to realize and live from loving presence. May all beings everywhere discover the freedom of their true nature. May there be peace on earth. May there be peace everywhere. May all beings be free. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.